Hello and welcome to the UCL News Podcast. I'm George. And I'm Claire. With exam season and term time rapidly coming to a close, this is the last podcast of the term. I know, it's really sad, but we've still got some great audio treats for you this week with student sabbatical officers James Scoos and Amy Evans talking about their year at UCLU. And we also hear about what Matt Piper and Sophie Scott have lined up for their Royal Society Summer Science Exhibitions. But first, the news. A new study from Dorian Fuller from the UCL Institute of Archaeology has shown that climate change led to the collapse of the ancient Indus civilization more than 4,000 years ago. Once extending more than 1 million square kilometres across the plains of the Indus River, from the Arabian Sea to the Ganges, over what is now Pakistan, northwest India and eastern Afghanistan, the Indus civilization was the largest but the least known of the first great urban cultures that also included Egypt and Mesopotamia. Owing their livelihoods to the fertility of the annually watered lands, the new study suggests that the decline in monsoon rains led to a weakened river dynamics and played a critical role both in the development and the collapse of the Harappan culture, which relied on the river floods to fuel their agricultural surpluses. Yeah, it's a really nice little story and it's interesting to think about how climate change has affected ancient civilizations mm, as well as um, being a modern problem, obviously. Um, and staying with urban civilizations, our next news item is about a new UCL Lancet report that looks at how we can change modern cities around the world to improve our health. And we're very lucky to have Ben from UCL Communications to come and talk to us about it. Hi, Hi ben. ben. Hi, it's good to be here. So tell us more about these healthy cities then. Okay, the UCL Lancet Commission on Healthy Cities is one of UCL's Grand Challenges projects which aim to solve real-world problems using UCL expertise. The report was led by Professor Yvonne Riding from the Bartlett School of Planning and involved academics from across the university and it looks at how we can reshape the urban environment to improve the health of people living in cities, especially the poorest. The authors looked at a series of case studies from cities around the world, including London, Bogota, Accra and Toronto. Examples from the report include community-led sanitation infrastructure programmes in the slums of Mumbai in India, action for urban greening to protect against heat stress during the London summers, and transportation initiatives that encourage physical activity in Bogota in Colombia. Yep, I've had a quick read of the report myself, and uh, it's it's really relevant, um, especially considering that three out of five people in the world will be living in a city by 2030. Um, the report really focuses on how to deliver a variety of urban health projects that have a positive impact on our health. Yes, and to accompany the report, we've created a range of multimedia features and interactive case studies to help you really get to grips with the huge scope of the report. Uh, these include an interactive diagram which has elements that light up when you click on them and then reveal further images and audio clips from Dr Carmen Lai who is in UCL Civil and Geomatic Engineering and she talks basically about how cycles of connections work in urban agriculture which also allow things like sanitation infrastructure to feed into that. And there's also going to be an audio slideshow where I interviewed Dr Julio Davila, who's from the UCL Development Planning Unit, and he talks in more detail about community-led sanitation projects in Mumbai in India, as we described before, and also an area called Old Fadama, which is in Accra. 
Yeah, I really recommend the audio slideshow. It's the researchers from UCL's Development Planning Unit have some really, really stunning images of cities around the world. So that's all the news for this show, but stay tuned to hear Matt Piper and Sophie Scott talk about what they plan to showcase at this year's Royal Society Summer Science Exhibition, which runs from the 3rd to the 8th of July at Carlton House Terrace. But first, the Student Union has always played a massive role at UCL, and the student sabbatical offices are a very important part of that. With new officers already elected and about to start, I went to speak to James Scoos and Amy Evans to find out more about what it's like to be a full-time sab as their one-year stints come to an end. Hi, I'm James Skews. I'm the Democracy and Communications Officer at UCLU uh, this year. Uh, I did a degree in chemistry and graduated in 2011. Hi, I'm Amy. I'm the Student Activities Officer this year. I did a degree here in Anthropology and uh, I graduated last year as well. Fantastic. So could you both kind of describe your roles as sabbatical officers here at UCL? Kind of what did it all involve? So uh, we have specific portfolios depending on what we do. So my, my job title is Democracy and Communication. So that covers a lot of uh, member involvement because all, all UCL students are members of the union if, uh, unless they choose not to be. Mm -hmm. So whether that's uh, getting involved in making decisions, uh, for example, at the referenda or through council or electing people like us. Uh, I also am in charge of... Uh, communicating with everyone so whether that's sending out the weekly email or looking after our uh, promotional strategy and all those sorts of things how about you amy i deal with student activities so i'm the fun one so i oversee all of the clubs and societies uh, if you haven't come into contact with them then you probably not hang around much because we have almost 200 now oh, and that's a lot of clubs yeah <laughs> uh, we have a staff team as well that obviously handles a lot of the administration mm -hmm. uh, but i help them out with a lot of their activities as well. I also oversee the volunteering um, at UCL. We have huge amounts of students volunteering, which is really great. A lot of community work. And I also oversee some employability projects. Um, so basically anything extracurricular um, to do with fun. Uh, that's my job. And we, we both sort of have um, a general role as sabbatical officers as sort of running the union, mm. not necessarily on a day-to-day -day basis, but sort of overseeing everything. So all, all six of the SABs sort of do that as well as our individual bits. I'm always amazed actually how, how much ground you, you, you cover just even in the, both of your respective roles. There's a lot in there actually um, and it seems, like, it seems like it's really good. So um, if I was to ask you kind of what's what's been the best bit about about the job over the past year or so and my my favorite bit about my role is that it's really student facing um, so every day I'm sort of meeting students who are really involved in what they're doing and really enthusiastic about it as well um, so yeah mm. how about you James uh, I, I quite like the variety of the role. So one day I might be doing uh, one thing, talking to the BBC, for example, and the other day I might be uh, listening to students and, and sort of responding to what their issues are. So there's a, there's a huge variety of, of different things, but it's, sometimes, it's, sometimes it's good things, sometimes it's um, challenging things, but it's, it's, a, it's a really good variety. It's, it's nothing the same on two different days. Fantastic. And then... The really cruel question, which is kind of what's what's been the most challenging thing about it? I'd have to say probably the other side of that um, in that it's not the same every day because some things just come out in out of the blue. But um, 
I'd, I'd say it's it's interesting and it's it's always good to sort of learn for for the future. Um, and I mean, I like to think that we do the best um, for the UCL students, and that's kind of why I ran for the role because I wanted to like make sure that that the union was doing the best by the students. And mm. I, I think we've we've tried to do that this year, but it, it's it's always different when, uh, difficult when things come in at the last minute or uh, hiccups come along. So it's it's quite a challenge sometimes. There's quite a lot of work, so keeping on top of things and time management is is quite challenging sometimes. But I think it's yeah, it's when you take a step back and you uh, talk to students that are benefiting from what you're doing and things like that is really really good. Definitely. So, what advice would you give to those who are thinking about running for um, kind of student sabbatical officers next year in the election? Is there any anything in, in hindsight which you would have done better in your campaign? I would say that often the union can seem quite cliquey mm -hmm. uh, because a lot of people are friends who are involved in it and they seem to know each other. But when I originally stood, I stood for a part-time officer, a sports officer, and I went into one of the sort of find out about elections events and I literally knew no one in that room and everyone seemed to know each other. Um, and I ran anyway and I got involved and it's, it is so much fun. So I would say don't be put off if you don't think that you know much about it because the experience that you do have is probably really valuable. Mm. Yeah, I'd say that uh, I, I kind of echo that. If you don't know everything or you don't think you know everything about the union, then that's not really an issue. Um, we do a lot of work with people who come in, whether that's for part-time or full-time, uh, and there's a lot of training and, and you, you do get to cover a lot of things, but it, it's often difficult to know what, what you're going to be doing when you sort of apply. And I mean, that's that's kind of what we've tried to do when people have asked questions. We've been, I, I think, honest in, in our responses. So. If, if people do want to find out more, then then do feel free to ask us, and I think any of us would be happy to um, to let you know what's going on. Fantastic. So what's what's next for you both? Uh, well, we can't stay on as sabbatical officers next year, unfortunately. So um, can't be doing that. But um, I'd like to be uh, within a similar sort of role. Um, I've really enjoyed the the sort of work I've been doing around co communication. So I think I'll be looking for a job in that sort of area, whether that's um, PR or. Uh, communications or media um, but I think I'm going to take some time out before that and, and maybe go traveling for a while. Oh, fantastic. And I've been applying for graduate schemes mostly in management and this job's given me a lot of experience in all, all different sorts of things. I would say that also you shouldn't do the job because it's good for employability but if you are looking at going into an area afterwards it is good and for most of the things I've applied to uh, I've at least got to interview stage so really it's a good head start. My name is Matt Piper, I work here at the Institute of Healthy Aging. We work on yeast, worms and flies and we try to discover any genetic or environmental manipulation that extends their healthy lifespan. And the point is of course that we don't want to learn how to extend the lifespan really of yeast, worms and flies. We want to understand how to extend the healthy lifespan of humans. And that really differentiates the research we do from any other type of biomedical research like cancer research or arthritis or diabetes research. We think those things are actually symptoms of one common cause and that's aging itself. So if we can treat aging, we can actually can treat all the diseases of aging simultaneously. So what we're going to show at the Royal Society exhibit are three things. We hope to introduce you to the biology of aging, the fact that genes control aging, the fact that uh, a worm can live for two weeks, uh, a mouse for three years, and a whale for a couple of hundred years, and a hydra even is reportedly supposed to be immortal.
it proves the point that, it, that for very long durations of time, things can be functionally uh, active for uh, a very old ages, so that this is biologically possible. Uh, the second component of what we are going to talk about and show and interact over is, is our model organisms, so the yeast worms and the flies. And I, I have a couple of flies here. What you'll be able to see is that we have very old flies in one of these vials and they sort of, like old people, they fall over and stumble around a bit, uh, whereas the younger flies are, are much more active. They jump up and they climb up the sides of the vials. And, and I think this is a real demonstration that even though these organisms are sort of foreign to most people is that uh, you can actually really see that they get old and that they age and so they're useful for our ageing research. And then the third part is to convey a message of what it is like to be older in yourself. So to hopefully give you an idea of what it will be like to look older and to feel older. These three things together sort of sum up what we, what we do here in the lab, which is to try and take what we know about the genetics and the environment and use those things on the yeast worms and flies to extend their healthy lifespan, to understand something more about human ageing and how we might be able to make humans healthier with old age. My name's Sophie Scott and I'm a cognitive neuroscientist working at University College London and I'm very interested in human brains and how they deal with human communication, so how my brain's controlling the sounds of the speech that I'm making now and how your brain's able to decode that information and also tell all sorts of other stuff from me about my voice. You couldn't see me, you could tell I was a woman, you could tell if I was angry. That's all there, that's part of what's going on. And this is the room that we use a lot for recording stimuli for our studies of this under nature. This is called an anechoic chamber and it's so called because there are no echoes in here so you get this very clean sound which is very good for um, making good recordings that we can then analyse ac acoustically and use in our brain imaging studies. But it also means that um, it's a slightly unpleasant environment to be in because you don't get any of the normal room sound that you get when you're moving around buildings. There's, there are no echoes and it always feels to me like I've got something wrapped around my head. The study that I'm going to talk a little bit about today is some stuff specifically that we've been doing on laughter and I'm very interested in human laughter. It seems to be uh, very unlike certain other emotions that we express so unlike things like fear or anger we use laughter in a very social way so laughter is used very widely in conversation and in play and we will pay good money to go and see people make us laugh yeah, I, I know what you're thinking <laughs> we could also see quite a long evolutionary history as with some of the other basic emotions for laughter so we're not the only animals that laugh chimpanzees laugh gorillas laugh and there's even evidence that rats laugh and uh, one of the things that we've been doing is looking at, for example, what happens in your brain when you hear the sound of somebody laughing because they're helpless with laughter or because they're sort of laughing in a more social way. And that required us to get people into the anechoic chamber and then do whatever it took to make them laugh. How's that? <laughs> and um, that was interesting. Sometimes that was harder than other times. But we found actually it worked best if we got groups of people who were friends and then they found it a lot easier to make each other laugh. <laughs> so, you know, the, even to get the real laughs for our stimuli, we were using the kind of social aspect of, what, of how laughter works to, to really help us get us on our way. <laughs>